Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray today, Lord, that you would open our hearts and open our minds. Lord, as we open up your word, Lord, speak to us. Reveal to us your glory and your grace. Lord, cause our affections to grow in love toward you. And teach us obedience to the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn with me to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 16 this morning. 2 Kings chapter 7, verses 3 through 16. Now, we are in the midst of this study, series on gospel-shaped outreach, gospel-shaped outreach, uh, which is evangelism. That's what we're looking at. We're looking at evangelism and our responsibility to uh, evangelize, to reach out to the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so our first our first message in this series was eager evangelism. And there we, we discovered that we all should be eager evangelists because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And so we should be, as Christians, eager evangelists, eager to share our faith with others. Then last week we looked at who is Jesus. Who is Jesus? And we saw last week through uh, Revelation chapter 1, 9 through 20, that Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our witness because Jesus is God's appointed human king. He is, his, he is a sovereign God, redeemer, and ever-present protector of the church. Jesus is worthy of our worship and our witness. And today, as we come to the day's text, we're looking at the question of who are we? Who are we? Who are we as his church, his people, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ? So that's what we will be considering today. If you found your place there in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 3 through 16, please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's holy word. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, we are, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we will die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall but die." So they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of the, 
The king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into the tent and ate and drank. And they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the, the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out, to the camp, out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us sin and see. So they took two horses, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away, in their haste and the message returned to the king then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians so Isaiah a flower was worth was sold for a shekel and two says of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord amen may the Lord have blessings to the reading of his holy inspired and inerrant word and may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts and you may be seated To whom much is given, much is required. When a Navy officer is given the commission of captain, and he takes the helm of a battleship, much is required of him. He must care for the welfare of the ship, and her crew, much is required. But also, as we consider our own position as believers of Jesus Christ and heirs of the kingdom, to those whom have received God's grace have a great responsibility to proclaim God's grace 
to the lost. Let me say that again. To those who have received God's grace, they have a responsibility, a grave responsibility to proclaim God's grace. You see, dear friends, as we become recipients of God's grace and we participate in God's saving grace through Jesus Christ, we have a grave responsibility. Not just to sit around, but to go out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the lost all around us. That's what we see in this text today. We see in this text that those who have received God's grace have a grave responsibility to share God's grace, to proclaim His grace. And so as we begin to look at this text this morning, I want to show you how this works out, and I want to show you three realities of the church that point to our responsibility to outreach. Three realities of the church that point to our responsibility to outreach, to evangelize, to share the gospel with the lost. And these three three realities are this, who we were, who we are, and who we must be. Who we were, who we are, and who we must be. So as we look at this text this morning and as we work through that, my my hope, my desire for you today is that as you leave this place, you would be convicted, that your heart would be convicted of your responsibility to share your faith with the lost, and that that would then drive you, drive you, that you'd be driven by that conviction to go out and take action and share the gospel with others this week. Now, as we begin to look at this text this morning, let me give you kind of the backdrop of, of where we are in this text. We kind of picked up right in the middle of a story. Now, let me clarify there by saying story. I do not mean that this is a, a fable or a tall tale, but this is a true historical story, an event that took place, really took place, in the life of the Israelites So this is a true story, but it is a story of an event that took place in Israel. This story takes place somewhere between the time of 852 and 841 B.C. During this time, King Joram is the king of Israel. This is a time of the the divided kingdom. So you have Judah down south, and their capital city is Jerusalem. But then you have Israel up north, and their capital city is Samaria. And so this is taking place in the north, in the, the northern country in Israel. And a siege has been set up around the capital city of Samaria. Now, Joram, the king there, uh, he is the son of Ahab and Jezebel. And he is the final king that will serve under that dynasty. You see, Ahab and Jezebel, they had led the Israelites to the pinnacle of idolatry and immorality 
not only had they, uh, Israel had already been deep in idolatry already, but when Ahab came in and he brought in his wife Jezebel, well, Jezebel brought in with her uh, the idol of Baal, or some people pronounce it Baal, a most terrifying, a most grotesque God who often required human sacrifice to be given to him. And so they have brought in the, the worship of Baal and led the people of Israel farther into idolatry than any kings and queens before them. They were absolutely immoral. In fact, if you back up to the end of 1 uh, Kings, you see uh, Ahab coveting uh, his neighbor's vineyard and then Jezebel sending out for his murder so that Ahab could take control of that vineyard. So this is an immoral dynasty who has led the Israelites into idolatry and immorality. And so as we come to this chapter then, we see that the, the Syrians have come and they have built this siege around the city. And you need to understand that this is a judgment of God. This is a judgment of God. They are under the wrath of God for their immorality and their idolatry. They have rebelled against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And now God is taking action and he is bringing them under judgment. The Syrians are just a tool in the master's hands. They are his instrument of judgment. Now, if you, you back up a little bit to chapter 6, verse 24, you begin to see the seriousness of this siege. There you find, verse 24, Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver, and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung uh, for five shekels of silver. Now, think about that. Horses and, and donkeys, they were valuable animals for the people back then. I mean, these were, and not for food. Right? Not for food. They were valuable for, for their ability to bear burdens and to work the fields. And so it was unheard of to, to eat these animals. They were, they were priceless in one sense to the people who owned them. That was their way of making a living. But the, the siege had brought on starvation and hunger, and that was the whole purpose of a siege. The, the army would come and surround the walled city and kind of keep everybody captured within. Uh, they would wait them out, basically wait them out and wait for the city to basically starve to death so that they would come out begging for relief. And that's what's taking place. The Syrians have seized the city. They have cut off the city from all supplies. And in the city, people are starving. So much so that this, they're selling... They're killing these valuable animals and using them for food. So much so that the donkey's head here was sold for 80 shekels. Now, to put this in perspective, if you back up in the Scripture there, you find that a live horse, a live horse is worth 150 shekels, and here, just the head 
The most useless part of the donkey is being sold for 80 shekels. And, a, and what they say there is a fourth of a part of a cab. That, in our measurements, is a half a liter. They're selling a half a liter of dove's dung, yes, to eat it, because they are that hungry, for what equals out to six months' wage for an average laborer in that day. If you continue the story there, you will, begin, you will see also not only that, but they've even come to the point where mothers slaughtering their own children and boiling them to eat. This is God's judgment upon the land. But hope has been given. Hope has been given. In chapter 7, verse 1, the prophet Elisha is there in Samaria. And the king has come to him because the king actually is coming to kill Elisha because he is the, the closest thing. He is God's representative. So he's coming in his anger towards God. He is coming to kill Elisha. But Elisha says this, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a sayah of flour shall be sold for a shekel and two sayahs of barley for a shekel. At the gate of Samaria. So the Lord has promised. He has delivered good news. Here the nation, nation of Israel is under the divine wrath. The divine judgment of God. But God is sending hope. Despite their sin. Despite their uh, idolatry. Despite their immorality. God says I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to save you. And so there is the context in which this passage takes place that we are looking at today. And so as we look at our passage, then we come to the three lepers, or excuse me, the four men, the lepers, sitting outside the entrance of the gate. Now these lepers are, number one, they are under the wrath of God. They are Samaritans, they are Israelites. And they too are under the wrath of God. They're sinners just like everyone else in the city. They deserve God's wrath. They deserve His judgment upon their lives. And they are there. They are under God's wrath. They are under His judgment. But also they are cursed with, with leprosy. Leprosy is a skin disease. Today it's curable with uh, a with drugs that they have that nowadays with modern technology it is curable but back in that day it was not curable it was an incurable disease and to have it was well was to be unclean as they would say the people recognized the lepers as unclean they were unworthy they were ceremonially unclean to enter into the court of God at the temple down in Jerusalem uh, but everyone saw them as unclean Unclean. In fact, they would have to pronounce that as they would walk down the street. If they got out in public at all, they would have to pronounce that as they went. Unclean, unclean, unclean. They were seen as unclean. We see that this is, Scripture kind of tells us this, informs us of this. That this 
leprosy often symbolizes or is used as a symbol of our own impurity, our own moral uncleanness. Now these lepers, they wore their uncleanness on the outside of their skin. Most of us don't have that. For most of us, we cover up our uncleanness. We cover up our immorality. We cover up our sin. But the truth is, each and every one of us in our natural condition, we are unclean, unclean, unclean. We are lepers of the soul. Sinners. Immoral. Idolaters. Rejecting God. You see, we are much like these lepers in our natural condition we are unclean and we are under God's wrath we are indeed wretched sinners under God's righteous wrath we are wretched sinners under God's righteous wrath well, Paul tells us this. He makes this clear for us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, we see in ourselves, we see these lepers in ourselves. In our natural condition, we were, we were wretched sinners under God's righteous wrath. That's where we deserve to be. That's all we deserve from God is His divine, righteous wrath. John Calvin once said that the human heart is a factory of idols. The human heart is a factory of idols. Oh, how true that is. You see, if we really begin to examine our own hearts, we see even now in our, our, the shape that we are in, even we born-again Christians, we have to see in ourselves that we are still quite wretched. For our hearts, there are a factory of idols. Do you not think so? And tell me, dear friend, why is it that you and I, we have no problem, no problem finding two, three hours a day to watch TV or to practice golf or to go hunting, but we struggle to get 15 minutes to God, to dig in His Word and, and spend time with Him in prayer? Why is it that it's so easy for us to, to set out of church on Sunday and go to a ball game or go to the Deerwoods or go wherever and neglect worshiping God with His people? 
Dear friend, everything that you put before God is an idol. And we all have them. And we need to get rid of them. We need to throw them away. God must be number one. I want you to see, dear friends, that all of us in our natural state, we are wretched, wretched sinners under God's righteous wrath. We deserve His judgment. And there are some here today you are still under God's righteous wrath. You are holding on to your sin. You are holding on to your life of disobedience. You are running from God. You want no part of God. And you are under God's wrath presently. And God's wrath against you is being stored up in heaven for that day when He will pour it out in its full strength upon you. But let me tell you, dear friends, you don't have to remain under God's wrath. For God has given us good news. He has given us good news how to escape His divine wrath. Yes, dear friends, we were wretched sinners under God's righteous wrath. But then came God's unmerited favor. Then came God's unmerited favor. As we continue on in this story, we see God's unmerited favor take place there, come down to Israel. As these lepers are sitting there at the gate, they begin to talk to one another and begin to, to kind of think things through. They look at each other and say, well, you know what, here's, here's our options. We can sit here and starve to death, or, or we can go into the city and we can starve to death in there with all the other people of the city. Or we could go out to the camp of the Syrians. And who knows what might happen. Now, they could kill us. Or they might have mercy. In other words, they say, what do we have to lose? If we stay, we die. If we go, we may die. But hey, we may receive mercy. And so they decide to take off. And they go out to the camp of the Syrians. But what do they find? As they, they go to the camp, uh, they begin to notice something quite peculiar. Now, there's the, all the horses still tied up, waiting for the battle. And there's the supplies all laid out, just tons of supplies, enough to feed uh, a couple of hundred thousand men. It's all there. And the tents, they're all set up. But where's the army? Where's all the men? Well, Scripture tells us, it gives us a peek into what took place. Probably the prophet Elijah came back and filled in the blanks here, but, but Scripture tells us exactly what happened. During the night, God showed up. God showed up. He came to fulfill His promise that He had given to the people of Israel by the prophet Elisha. And He showed up. And He made it sound that night, in the middle of the night, He made the sound come around the camp of a mighty army marching across the plain. 
And as the Syrian army heard it, they said, Oh, oh, the king of Israel, he's gone out and he's, he's hired the Hittites and he's hired the Egyptians to come up against us. The fear of the Lord came into their hearts because God showed up. And God chased them out with his spiritual army. He chased out the Syrians and freed the Israelites. They took off. They ran for home. It was all because of God's wonderful grace. These men, they go into the tents and they find all the food still laid out, some of it even prepared, ready to eat, and they sit down and they begin to just fill themselves with the food that is left there. They begin to take the silver and the gold that the Syrian army had, had picked up as their loot during all the other battles that they fought on their way to, to Samaria, and they go in and take their loot, and, and they take it and go hide it for themselves. You see what happens? Here they are. They are unworthy, unworthy recipients of God's unmerited grace. They are unworthy recipients of God's unmerited grace, just like we are. Did they deserve it? No, they were sinners under God's divine wrath. But yet God came to them not because of their merit, not because of anything they had done, but because of God's unmerited grace. He saved the Israelites. That's who we are. That's who we are, dear Christian. We are unworthy recipients of God's unmerited grace. If you go on Ephesians chapter 2, there it says, But God... We were under God's wrath. We were children of, of God's wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were unworthy of His grace, He made us alive together with Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Oh yes, dear friends, that's who we are. That's who we are. We are unworthy recipients. We are sinners. We are rebels against an almighty God. We have spurned his glory. We have spurned his holiness. We deserve his wrath. We are unworthy of his grace, yet he gives us his grace, his unmerited favor is freely given to us. God shows his love for this, for us like this. But while we were yet Sinners. While we were still wrapped up in our sins, God sent His Son, His only Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God Himself. He came to this earth. He took on human flesh. 
He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. Though he was without sin, he went to Calvary's cross and he died for our sins. He was raised again for our justification so that we might stand before God justified, declared righteous. Not because of our righteousness, not because of our morality, but because of Jesus' righteousness. That's who we are. We are unworthy recipients of God's, God's unmerited grace. Today there are some here. There are some in this place, I believe it with all my heart, you are still under God's wrath because of your sin. But the good news for you today is God's unmerited grace is extended to you. You can know His grace. The grace that is given to each one of us through Jesus Christ. If you would only believe in Jesus. Oh dear friend, will you believe today? You are. You are a wretched sinner under God's righteous wrath. But you can be. By God's grace through faith an unworthy recipient of His unmerited grace. You'll only believe in Jesus. Oh, would you believe today? So that is who we were. We were. We were wretched sinners under God's righteous wrath. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we are now we are now unworthy recipients of God's unmerited favor. But now we need to see who we must be. Who we must be. Dear church, we must be bold proclaimers of God's gospel of grace. Church, we must be bold proclaimers of God's gospel of grace. Look again to our text there in verse 9. Oh, this is so important. Look at this. Write this down. Mark it in your Bible. They, the lepers, said to one another, We are not doing right this day. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning, until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. Notice as they begin, they are there feasting on God's grace. They're feasting on God's grace. But then they come to realize, what are we doing? What are we doing? This is a day of good news. God has delivered his people from the hand of the Assyrians. If we continue here and we wait until morning light, surely God's punishment will come down upon us. Dear friend, the church is feasting on God's grace. But all the while, there are people, 
the lost throughout the world who are dying and going to hell and we are sitting on our hands and not taking them the good news of Jesus Christ. Oh dear friend, oh God's punishment will fall down upon us if we remain silent. Oh, would God punish His people? Would God, surely, would God punish His people for not evangelizing, for not sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the lost? You bet He will. Hear this warning from Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 18. God is warning the prophet Ezekiel here. He says to him, If I say to the wicked, You shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from, uh, from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for their iniquity, but his blood will be required at your hand. How many people in this community are dying and going to hell and their blood is remaining on our hands? You want to see it again, dear friend? In Revelation, we, was there, we were there last week. But Revelation, last week we looked at, at Jesus and who Jesus is, but when you get into chapter 2, it is a warning to the churches. A warning to the seven churches. And I want you to see this. The first church to whom he warns is the church at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. The Lord says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I, am your, I know your work, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who, who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. That's, that's the good thing. They've been doing that right. But then verse 4 says, But, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the work you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now what was the first love? What was the first love? If you back up to the book of Acts, and you look at Paul's third missionary journey. On his third missionary journey, Paul winds up in, in Ephesus, and he's there for a couple of years. There in Ephesus. And you see their first love because Paul is there preaching and, and others are going out preaching and, and the gospel is going out from the church at Ephesus so that the Scripture in Acts says that all of Asia came to know the gospel. You see, at first, their first love was they, they, were, they loved Christ and they were proclaiming Christ. It was going out from them, out from them, out from them and spreading not only in Ephesus but in all the whole region the gospel was being proclaimed. And Jesus comes to them now. 
many, many years later, and he says, you have left your first love. You have left your first love. Repent! Repent and, and go back. Do the works that you did from the beginning or else I will remove your lampstand. I will remove your light from this world. Ephesus today is in modern Turkey. And the chief religion there is Islam. Much because the church at Ephesus did not respond to the warning. And God took out their light. Look around. Look around. Oh, how this church is shrinking. keep losing people to death and, and moving away. And the pews are not being filled with the lost who are out there waiting to hear the good news of the gospel. God is calling out to us today. He is calling out, return to your first love. Return to your first love. Proclaim the gospel throughout your community and I will come to you. I will bless you. But if you continue this path, if you refuse to reach out to the lost, I will take out your light. I'll replace you with another. Oh, church, feel the warning. Feel the warning. I have felt it. I have a burden. God has called us to reach out to the loss of this community. Black, white, Hispanic, young, old, all of them need to hear the gospel. And we've got to go out and take them the gospel. Or God's judgment comes upon us. We must. We must. Be bold proclaimers of God's gospel of grace, His good news of grace. We are wretched sinners under God's righteous wrath. We were wretched sinners under God's righteous wrath. We are unworthy recipients of God's unmerited grace. And we must be, we must be, we must be bold proclaimers of God's gospel of grace. There's no choice in it. We must be. Dear friends, I want you to see this though. And this is where I'm going to close. That evangelism, evangelism, it's, it's not to be a daunting task. You need to see that. It's not to be a daunting task. Oh, Satan tells us how, how scary a thing it is and he lies to us and, and all of these things. But it's not to be a daunting task. But it is to be the joy of the church. John chapter, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. John opens up this letter to, uh, to that church by saying this, that that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, 
which we look upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus. In other words, the gospel, right? Jesus, the Son of God, came. He took on human flesh. We saw Him. We felt Him. We, we lived with Him. He died on the cross and He rose again. And we saw Him. We ate with Him. We touched Him. We have seen it. And we pass that on to you so that you can have fellowship with us even as we have fellowship with the Father. And look at verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So that our joy may be complete. Dear friends, here's what we find when we begin to go out and share the gospel with the lost. Oh, yes, for some of us, it's, it's a very scary thing. We get, we get frightened because we don't like to talk to anybody about anything. And so it can be a scary thing. But what we find when we go out and we begin to open our mouths, even from the very beginning, God replaces that fear with a joy. He replaces that fear with great, wonderful joy. You see that Navy captain, when he takes the helm of that ship, for the very first time, oh yeah, he's got a grave responsibility. But that's what he feels like he was created to do. That's what he was meant to do. He has been waiting for that moment to take the helm and drive that ship. And dear friends, when we go out and share the gospel with the lost, what we discover is that's what God created us to do. And when we are faithful to do what God has called us to do, He fills us with joy, unspeakable and full of glory. Oh, those, those who have received God's grace have a grave responsibility to go out and proclaim God's grace to the lost. But when we proclaim God's grace to the lost, we find great and wonderful joy. Dear friend, let me encourage you. Go out this week. Make it a point today. Decide today. In this moment, I'm going to be obedient to God and I'm going to seek His face and I'm going to leave from this place and I'm going to look for opportunities to share the gospel with the lost because that's what God's called me to do. And I'm going to trust that He is going to fill me with joy. Would you do that today? Would you make that commitment today? To reach out to the lost? Now for some here today, you don't know the joy of God because you don't know God and you don't know Jesus Christ. Well, today is the day that you can know Him.
Today is the day that you can know the, God, the grace, the unmerited grace of God in your own life if you will only trust in Jesus. He lived and died for you and he rose again so that you might have eternal life if you will only believe. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your rebellion. Quit chasing after world, the world's things and turn to God and trust in Jesus and God will save you. Will you trust in him today? Oh, Heavenly Father. Oh, Lord, let us not be disobedient. But Lord, we let us feel the weight of that. Lord, we were unrighteous, wretched sinners under your divine wrath, but yet you saved us. You saved us by your unmerited grace. You saved us and brought us out from under your judgment and gave us a place in your kingdom. Now, Lord, as you have given us the message of grace, Lord, let us be faithful. Lord, work in us. Change our attitudes. Change our, our desires, Lord. So that our passion in life is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the lost and dying world. Oh, the cries of torment are all around us if we would only open our ears and listen. And we have the answer. Let us be faithful. Let us be faithful to proclaim the gospel to all who will hear. And Lord, if there are those today, and surely there are, that don't know your unmerited grace, Oh, Lord, let them turn to Jesus today. Let them know Jesus. Save them today, Lord, I pray. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.